Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bovinghausen. Today is Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. We had our weekly Bible study this week, but um, hasn't been so weekly for the past couple weeks because we took a little bit of a hiatus. Um, we were expecting um, our child to be born. We didn't know exactly what the sex was going to be until she was born. So we have a little girl, Charlotte Jane Bovinghausen, um, who we baptized this last Sunday. So um, everything has been going very well. We were extremely blessed, but that's the reason why we took a little bit of a hiatus from things, why uh, we haven't been doing Bible study as regularly, or you may even, if you're following us on YouTube or whatever, that we haven't been putting our sermons out, uh, that uh, one of the pastors here that's retired has been filling in for me, um, and they haven't been recording things, which is which is fine, <laughs> but we're supposed to be, or we're hopefully going to be back on track with some things uh, now that Charlotte is here and that we are um, rolling along. Hopefully uh, things might change. Well, for one thing, certain things have changed. It's a bit of an update. We are no longer doing, well, we're having matins in the mornings, but we will not be putting that um, them out on the podcast. Um, not a lot of people were listening to them, and honestly, the the uh, amount of work that went into it was just not worth uh, worth the time. So it's just easier for people to show up in person and do it, and or just have it as a, a personal uh, as as time for me to really pray and get ready for the day as the pastor. And I apologize for my voice being kind of weak right now. We just got done with Bible study, and it's been a while since I've teached and used my voice in such a way. Anyways, today we got back to uh, our weekly Bible study on Hebrews. We are in chapter eleven. The last um, eight verses of chapter eleven, verses thirty-two through forty, uh, getting into uh, what we were, what we'll be looking at next week, which is chapter twelve. So um, we spent most of our time catching up a little bit, re-reviewing certain things that we talked about to lead into this part because it was just such a short part um, to really talk about. There's a lot there, but um, we covered some good ground. Uh, it was nice to get back into the teaching role, and um, I hope that this blesses you and that you uh, learn from it. And um, if you're in Fredericksburg, uh, please be sure to stop by sometime and join us for Bible study. We'd love to have uh, any guests come by. Uh, if you live in Fredericksburg and would like to come by, feel free to come by. We're a friendly bunch. We don't bite, and uh, we like seeing uh, new new faces and uh, different perspectives, so maybe we can learn a little bit more. Anyways, without further ado, here is the Bible study from this morning. So the commemoration today is for Joshua, so that's what the prayer for the day is about. So... The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your servant Joshua led the children of Israel through the waters of the Jordan River into a land flowing with milk and honey. As our Joshua, who lead us we pray, through the waters of our baptism into the promised land of our eternal home, where you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I like that prayer. Do you all get that? The, uh, that, that Jesus is now our new Joshua? In fact, Jesus in the uh, in the in the Aramaic, I believe, is actually Yeshua. So he's like the new Joshua who leads his people to the new promised land. So think about that. It's kind of neat. Um, in fact, you see that in Jesus' life is a bit of a sidetrack, sorry. But it's kind of neat. Uh, a bit of a sidetrack that uh, with Joshua. 
You know, he was the one who led the people into the promised land. And Jesus, <clears throat> think about it, where uh, when Joseph and Mary fled from Herod, where did they go? They went to Egypt. And then they came back to Nazareth to settle. But then when Jesus began his ministry, where did he begin his ministry at? The Jordan River, being baptized by John the Baptist, which the Jordan River was where Joshua crossed over with the people into the Promised Land. It's kind of neat, right? Kind of a nice, nice tie-in, nice completion there. Um, let me set this right. So where do we leave off from last time on our Bible study? Uh, anybody, anybody remember? Getting close to chapter 12, yeah. I have things underlined here. It ends uh, with 31, chapter 11, 31. Right, that's right. We're, uh, we, we, I didn't go back and listen to what we did before, but I kind of remember a little bit. And I have a bookmark in my commentary here about where we were. Um, but I guess it's a bit of a refresher of what's going on uh, so we can lead in, because it's been a couple weeks. Been a good couple weeks, but it's been a couple weeks, and uh, um, we can benefit from reviewing here a little bit, right? So last time we went from, I think, what, verse, we got to Abraham, right? And then we got through to the verse 31, but we'll just, we'll just begin with, um, uh, for, Okay, we probably, yeah, we stopped it. That's right. We went from 17 to 31. So let's review that. So uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 31. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in, in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of, of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of of Egypt, for he was, for he was looking to the re reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for s seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly, a, a friendly welcome 
to the spies. So we stopped there, right? So then we talked about, um, you said you had some parts that were highlighted, or what, what did we talk about last time, if you can remember the specifics, or even the general thing we talked about? This whole chapter, right, is all about faith, and what, is, what does it do for us to talk about, about Abraham, Moses, Joshua, even Rahab? What is, what, is, what is the point of talking about these people of faith? Well, see, that's, that's a good question, because, uh, so, so the question is, was that in, uh, was that in the back of Abraham's mind that even if he followed God's will to sacrifice his son Isaac, that God could raise him from the dead? And, you know, we wouldn't know. I'll just answer it this way. We wouldn't know that for sure unless it was for Hebrews here. Because we hold, and rightly so, that this is the divinely inspired word of God. And that it is the truth. That we can hold it to be the truth. Uh, and trustworthy above all things, right? That whoever wrote this was divinely inspired and knew somehow that that was the thinking behind it. That somehow the Holy Spirit um, revealed this to whoever wrote this to show that even back then, that's what Abraham thought. And that ever since the beginning of God's people with um, the promise received by Abraham, they believed in a... a Resurrection from the dead. So that's been around for a long time, and that's proof here in Hebrews for sure that that was even the thinking during Abraham's time. He reasoned that. He reasoned that God gave him Isaac because Isaac was to be the father of a big nation. And so I think, you know, Abraham in the back of his mind was thinking, okay, I need to obey God. Yeah. Um, I think it brings out the faith. Everything was by faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm trying to see here, because you said reasoned, right? Is that the NIV? Okay. And is that the the NIV? Okay. Yeah, um, I'm trying to see if there's anything here about that word. Because in that translation, it's reasoned. In the English Standard Version, it says he considered, right? Um, uh, in the Greek, the word is logisomenos, which is the root word has... Logos, which is like logic, reason, right? He considered, he believed, or he uh, he reasoned, he considered, he thought and knew, he reckoned that this would be the case, right? Um, but yeah, it is a testament to the faith that he trusted God in that these promises that were given to Abraham, you know, that, that um, you'd be the father of, of 
of many nations, right? That why would it all end with that? That surely God had something in mind. Surely God had a plan. Surely God would not just let it all end there because then God would be a liar, right? Um, and he trusted that God was faithful and that God's promises were sure and said, I don't really understand, but I'm going to continue on. doesn't make sense to me. In fact, it probably pained him tremendously to do that. His only son um, that he had in his old, old age, right? As a miracle, now God wants him to be sacrificed. But it's kind of interesting. Yeah, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because... Isaac was as good as dead, right? And it's not that it was only, um, it wasn't that it was just God's will and Abraham forced his son to go through with it, right? Abraham was old. He was an old man by this time. Isaac was a young man and strong enough to resist his father. He didn't have to go along with it if he didn't really want to. But that is a picture uh, of Christ, right? And the relationship of Christ as God the Son in relation to God the Father. That their will is the same will. That you see this picture here with Abraham and Isaac. That Isaac goes, goes along with what his father was doing. His will was the same as his father's will because he trusted in God. And it's really funny to hear these things about how it's like, well, after this, it's just kind of like, Dad, what was that all about? You know, sort of thing. Uh, or uh, someone even I've, I've had, or I heard that, that afterwards you don't see anything really, after that instance between Abraham and Isaac, you can interpret some sort of distance between the two of them because that was just such a, a thing where where uh, where their relationship was tested, and that Isaac clung more to Sarah after that instead of Abraham. I don't think there's any real reason to believe that. I think that um, that if anything, their relationship was probably stronger because of what they experienced together in that moment, where the angel comes and stays his hand before he kills he kills Isaac and then gives them a ram to sacrifice instead as a substitution, right? Um, but it does speak to faith, and that Abraham passed on that faith to his son Isaac, and Isaac passed on that faith to Jacob um, and Esau, but Esau rejected it, right? He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, as it were. Um, and uh, then Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his... Sorry, sorry, Jacob. Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. But you see this recurrence, by faith, by faith, by faith. You see that none of this is done without faith. And it behooves us to remember constantly what it means to have faith because I think even uh, especially nowadays um, in American Christianity there's this confusion about what faith is right that faith is I don't know it has to do with our free will right that a lot of people think, you know, I have the free will to choose or reject. And we as Lutherans, uh, reading the Bible the way that we do, which uh, we confess is the way the church ought to read it, and the way the church has always read it, is that faith is not something we do by our own will, but it's done by the will of God, right? The will of God proclaims the promises and the Holy Spirit delivers these promises, delivers 
these um, things that God promises to do and brings life to our, our souls to accept these things. You know, like we confess in, uh, you know, as my father-in-law said in the sermon on Sunday, that the, third, the explanation of the third article of the creed, right? I believe that by my own, um, this is bad, I can't remember exactly, but the way that I remember it is I believe that I can't believe. Does that make sense? I mean, it does by scripture because you see the creed, yeah, here we go. I even have a small catechism on my phone, what's up? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, um, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. And keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Right? That the Holy Spirit gives us faith. It is a pure gift from God. That it's not something that we can choose to accept on our own. Um, because then, in some sense, or in every sense, depending on how you see it, we wouldn't really need God for our salvation, right? If we were able to save ourselves by choosing what we wanted to believe, that kind of takes God out of the picture. So you see here that by faith they all did these things, not because they were strong in themselves, but because God had delivered the promise to them. That's as simple as I can put it, that God gave them these promises. These promises were so great and showed the tremendous, gracious character of God that with joy they accepted them, right? Um, it's kind of hard to uh, figure because I think we talked last time, there's one time where you just were like, what are you going on about? You're going on and on and on about faith. And the thing is that faith is very simple, but it's also very complex because it's a mystery, right? That God grants us faith by the hearing of God's word and the salvation that's won through Christ. That apart from that, um, God has not promised to work, right? Um, and when it comes to faith, it is so simple that all you have to do, like we, like, like we heard in Romans on Sunday, that whoever believes and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, will be saved. And then, of course, baptism is tied into that as well, right? Uh, that if you believe, you should be baptized. That is a sign and a seal and a working of the Holy Spirit in the washing of rebirth in the waters of holy baptism with God's word, right? So that is to say that it's as complex or as simple as you want to make it. But simply trust in these promises that God has granted. And these, all these um, forerunners in the faith receive this faith that we have today in full. But they only had sort of a, a type and shadow of what was to come. They knew that there would be a Savior to come. And they knew that that Savior would come at some point point in time that God would uh, determine, and thanks be to God that we know that Savior to be Christ. Right. Um, so we go on from here, and we see, at the time, they received all this stuff, like I said, as a foreshadowing. They saw these bits and pieces that were kind of coming together, but now through the lens of Jesus, when we look back at these things, we can see everything very clearly as to what they were pointing to. Remember that diagram that I would always show where, in fact, I use the cross here, where you see that in, if history is put on a line, right? You have creation over here, and you, know, you go on, 
with Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel, all the way through to through all the patriarch patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the judges, the kings, all that stuff like that, leading all the way to Jesus and the cross. That from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, they were looking forward to the promise to be fulfilled. That the seed of the uh, that the seed of the the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that was fulfilled in Christ, right, and His cross. So everyone at the beginning of time was always uh, gazing forward to when that would be fulfilled, and now that it has been fulfilled in Christ and His crucifixion, His death, and and. And resurrection and ascension. Now going forward to where we are here, right? Now we look back to what Christ has done and we look forward to the day when he will come back, right? But it's always looking, the focal point is what, what has been fulfilled in Christ on the cross and the salvation. Um, from sin, death, and the power of Satan to the blood of Christ. Okay? And we see that, uh, that every time we look backward into the scriptures, into the Old Testament especially, everything, every single thing, proclaims Christ. It has something to say about what will be done in Christ. Um, and you see that in foreshadowings like, with Abraham and Isaac, uh, the various judges, like even Samson, was a type of Christ and how he would save God's people, right? So looking back in Hebrews 11, getting to where we're supposed to be today, you see that even through Moses, Moses, um, by faith, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of of, of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm at uh, verse 25 here. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the the Reward, right? So even then, during Moses' time, he was considering what would be done in Christ. He looked forward to that, that time. Um, and then you see here, he left, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is, who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And I'm trying to think. In that Passover meal, we even see Christ, right? Because what was what was the by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. The blood of what? Lamb. The blood of a lamb. And it was over what? The doorpost, door right? It was a covering of the household that showed protection from God so that they would not see death. And in the same way, we are covered by the blood of Christ now in holy baptism as a promise of uh, salvation from death as well. It's all foreshadowing what Christ would do. Um, by faith... That's interesting, too, about Moses. You know, he was just a baby when Pharaoh's daughter found him. Mm -hmm. And he was raised, you know, as an Egyptian, not knowing he was Israel, you know, a, a child of Israel. Mm -hmm. But yet, when it came down to the nitty-gritty and he had to make a choice... About, about what the Israelites believed. I mean, he 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we see, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah, because who knows what would have happened because, or how this happened, because um, how was Pharaoh's daughter taking care of the baby Moses? And if we look in Exodus chapter 2, we see um, that when she found uh, the child, you know, they found the basket, right, among the reeds, this, and she sent her servant, and she took it, and she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became, and, and, and he became her son. So when the child was done weaning, I guess you could say, which I don't really, I, I have to look and see like how old he would have been. Um... Yeah, but it's interesting because it even says later on, it says, um, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And then it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, that is the Hebrews, and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So I think on some level, Moses knew that he wasn't Pharaoh's daughter, that he was adopted. He probably looked a little different too. And he was raised in a way that was, yeah, not as a Hebrew child would have been raised traditionally, but I would imagine that he knew on some level that I'm adopted. This isn't my real mother. I'm kind of an outcast in some ways. I would imagine that even though, and I need to look in on this, but this is just my um, surface level interpretation of this, that with Moses, when he was brought in by Pharaoh's daughter, everybody knew that he was a Hebrew child. Everybody knew it. But they probably respected Pharaoh's daughter enough not to kill him or not to, uh, you know, go after him. And so he was under her protection to a, to a degree. But I would imagine he probably didn't hear uh, a whole lot of flattering things about being a Hebrew growing up. He was just given the respect that was due to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh... I mean, I, I need to look into it further to see what other people think about that, the, the interpretations of that text. But, it, I mean, Scripture makes it clear that he goes down to see his people. That on some level, he knew that he was a Hebrew. Well, if she nursed until he was like three, say. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that she sang songs to him. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think just through listening to his family and, you know, he, he wrote. Yeah, yeah I, I think that is a fair assumption that Moses was, you know, till, till he was two or three, was weaned and then handed over to Pharaoh's daughter. And, you know, um, on some level still retained whatever sort of beginning instruction he had received from his actual mother. Um, somehow the Lord's hand was on him to ensure that he still knew who his people were and what that means. 
And so that when it came time for him to be called by God to do what he needed to do as his prophet, you know, God still strengthened him. God still took care of him. God called him to do that special task. So yeah, um, and we can read this within the lens of Hebrews to see that, yeah, he, that it was still done by faith. And in some sense, it was the faith that he received as a child, knowing I'm, I'm a Hebrew, so my God is the God of the Hebrews, right? And being reminded, I would imagine, on some level too, being reminded that you're a Hebrew over and over and over again, probably by the, uh, by the Egyptian court, they probably might have shunned him from certain things that they, they did with their gods. Or he probably was more lured to find out about what was going on with the Hebrew god so that he could, so he's just like, you know, well, they call me a Hebrew. I guess I better find out what that means. It's a possibility. Possible. Good question. It's a good question because because you see, like you know, you see, you can see a clear line with all the other uh, examples of faith in chapter eleven. You know, um, fathers and sons passing down the faith, and then you get to Moses, who's kind of an anomaly in that he's not in that household, as it were, with the father teaching what the faith is, with them instilling it in him from a young age. And yet still God calls him to do marvelous things, right? Um, so yeah, Moses is kind of an anomaly. And he's kind of the exception to the rule, I would say, um, as far as how people are brought up in the, are, like, receive the faith, ideally, receive the faith, and then are brought up in the faith, which ideally is from childhood to adulthood, right? Um, but still... That doesn't mean that people who are adults and never knew their entire lives can't be saved, right? Um, but then we see, you know, by faith, all these things. So let's move on to, because we're not going to spend too much time in this last little bit. Uh, but we see it leading all the way through to, um, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And there we see this nice transition. So Rahab will forever be known, for better or worse, as the prostitute. Now, does that mean that she stayed a prostitute? No. She repented, and eventually she married a Hebrew, right? And her household that was saved because she had given aid to the spies in Jericho, right? Because her household was saved, and God, God had promised that they would not be destroyed, her household was adopted and assumed into the people, the people of Israel, that... The Hebrew God became their God. And Rahab, the prostitute of all people, became what? She became a great, 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 an umpteenth great grandmother of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That in the genealogies that you see of Christ, especially in Matthew, Rahab is one of the matriarchs in the messianic line. And what was it that brought her into this great messianic line? Was it because she was such a good person? No. She was a prostitute. By all accounts, she was a horrible person. But what happened? She heard the accounts of the people. She heard the accounts of the Hebrews and how mighty and great their God was, and she had fear of the one true God and received the spies for the Hebrews into her house. And by faith, she was saved, including her household. That they were the only ones spared from the destruction of Jericho, right? 
And it was all because she heard the promises, she heard how great and mighty God is, and she believed. And she acted in accordance with that faith that was given to her by hearing, right? Pretty amazing stuff. Um, so let's move on to what we really should be, this is all a bunch of review right now, but that's okay, we still got plenty of time. Um, so what we were supposed to be talking about today is the last bit of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, before we move on though, just so I'm catching myself here, uh, let me make sure that I'm, I'm adding in some things here that might be worth considering. Um, Because I like, and I keep saying it, but I like Dr. Kleinig's commentary because he always has this little bit at the end of each section for reception and application on how the church has seen this passage and how even maybe our Lutheran confessions uh, speak to it as well, uh, or even our creeds. Um, Um, so throughout this whole catalog of the faithful in the Old Testament, we see that um, this teaches, like this whole catalog from Adam to um, Abel, you know, to Enoch, you know, going on through to Abraham and Moses and even Rahab. We see that this catalog of the Old Testament faithful teaches about the purpose of faith, right? And by faith, we have access to God's gracious hidden presence and his heavenly gifts, right? That where do we, ex where do we um, receive these heavenly gifts? It, like for us here today. Where do we receive the heavenly gifts of God? Yeah, where do we receive them? Ideally. At home in bed. At home in bed. At home. Um, it's not really what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, the altar and the Lord's Supper, the font and holy baptism. This is ideally, you know, there might be an emergency situation like if Charlotte was in the hospital uh, when, when she was born and we weren't sure. In fact, you know, that ideally we wanted to have her baptized in church because bringing the child into church, having her or him, depending on whose word, we're all right, having them be received into the body of Christ in a very real, visible way adds a little more credence to that. But... In extraordinary circumstances, if Charlotte was in a lot of trouble, like she it wasn't sure if she was going to live for very long or whatever, I told the, the hospital staff, I said, they asked what our preferences were when, when uh, we were in there for the birth, and one of the things was, if things aren't looking good, or if, you know, if, if something's wrong, I'd like to be able to baptize my daughter. And they said, <laughs> it was kind of funny. Because they said, okay, we can get you in touch with the chaplain, if that's what you want. And I didn't say it. My wife said, he's a pastor. And, and she's like, oh, okay, well, then you'll take care of it then. I was like, yeah, I'll take care of it. But anybody can take care of it in the uh, extreme circumstances, right? Any believer can baptize somebody else if it's in, uh, if it's in um, emergency baptism. Someone's close to death or something. But ideally, we want it done in the church by the pastor so that things can be done by good order and so that, um, you know, not, not to say that the external things have a whole bunch of weight added to them, but in some ways they do, right? You have a bunch of other people say, 
I was there, like when Charlotte's going to be growing up, you know, hopefully y'all can see her and say, I was there for your baptism. I saw when you became a child of God. I saw when your dad, our pastor, poured the water on your head and said the divine words of the divine name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I was there. I saw you become a child of God. It's a beautiful thing, right? Huh? Witnesses are important, yeah. Yeah, witnesses are important, and we're going off on a tangent here, but it's worth it. It's amazing how important witnesses are, because, and I don't know if I told this story, that while I was in the seminary, um, I had a friend who's a fellow seminarian who's going to be a pastor get baptized. Isn't that amazing? How is that possible, though? I mean, ideally, you want guys who are already baptized and been in the church for a while to then go on to become a pastor. You don't, you don't want someone who's not baptized to get accepted into the seminary. By all accounts, he thought he was, but the thing was that he grew up in Northern California and attended an ELCA congregation, and when we started learning in the seminary how important baptism is, how the different components of uh, the formula of saying, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, not something like, you know, I, like, I, I went to a baptism once that was um, upsetting because they said, I baptize you in the name of uh, Jesus, our teacher, and his spirit. And I, said, and I, was, I stood there, was like, like my jaw hit the floor. And of course, it's in the middle of the service, and I can't say anything. I was like, what is going on right now? I, I wanted to grab that baby and just be like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There you go. Done. Because the words are important. It's not that, it's not that they're magical, but what they convey. We are reciting the words of Christ, right? That the promise is found in those words, not as a magical formula, but as the promise of whose divine name we are being baptized into, right? But um, I had a friend who was baptized in the seminary, and I was there to see the baptism. It was really neat. It was kind of neat also because it was at his fieldwork church, and it was after Sunday service. So all of, so it's like whatever friends were invited, we all showed up in our clerical collars, and we're all sitting in the pews watching him get baptized. And he's got his clerical collar on too, and he's leaning over the font getting baptized by his supervisor. It was, it, was, it, was, it was because he couldn't validate the words that were said in his baptism, and no one was really sure that he was baptized in the triune name of God. So after much, much consultation with other faculty members of the seminary, who are pastors, they said, we don't believe that you were validly baptized, that you were actually baptized. So it's not that you're getting rebaptized; it's that you're getting baptized now, and we and just like make sure of it, right? And the same thing with a friend of mine who was a seminarian, who's um, was my best man at my wedding, and you know the godfather of Charlotte that my dad was standing in for. He's a pastor in Nebraska. His wife was baptized at our fieldwork church because there were some questions about that too, but it was all for assurance. It's to be assured of this salvation, right? It's to be assured that you are covered in God's grace by God's promise explicitly stated in God's word, right? But the Old Testament faithful catalog in chapter 11 of Hebrews teaches what the purpose of faith is in that we have access to God's gracious hidden presence and his heavenly gifts given in the word proclaimed, given in holy baptism, given in the Lord's in, in the Lord's supper, right? That by faith this water and the word are not just, you know, a ritual. They're not just a nice thing to be said. That they receive the things that God promises. That by faith we don't just have bread and wine. We receive the benefits that come from receiving the body and blood of Christ. That by faith, we hear the words spoken from Scripture and spoken from pastors in the pulpit. And we receive the benefits that they proclaim in hearing the words of Christ. 
um, that we are to hear these things and believe them, right? In the divine service. And, Klein, and Kleining says, so in the divine service, we can come near to God in faith, confident that he is there for us to find and um, that he awards us, that he awards his good gifts to us and to all who draw near to him in Christ. Okay? Good stuff. All right. Let's, let's keep going. We're barely going to get through this last bit here. But this is all the energy I was pinching, like I was, I was saving during these last two weeks of being away. Um, I'm just getting excited here. So, um, we finished off with Rahab, and now verse 32 in chapter 11 to the end of the chapter. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women, sorry, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what does this mean? Um, you know, he could go on and on and on about all the other heroes in the faith, right? Um, and he kind of lumps them up very, very nicely here when he talks about um, uh, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets. And we see here that when he says, you know, if you looked at it chronologically, he's not going chronologically. He says, you know, Gideon and Barak, uh, he, he kind of pairs them in a certain way. It's kind of interesting. Gideon, Barak. Barak came before Gideon, but Gideon was greater because of the great things that God did through him with a smaller amount of people defeating more of, defeating more of the enemies of God, right? And then we see this too where Samson in some ways was greater than Jephthah because he killed more... Uh, he killed more Philistines in his death than, his, than in his life, right? He achieved a greater um, glory in that way. And then David is mentioned, but not Saul, right? Because Saul was the apostate king that was rejected by God. But David is like the father of that kingdom. So he's mentioned as the head of it all. And then we say, and then we see um, Samuel who is the father of the prophets, as we see later on through Elijah and Elisha, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, all these other prophets, right? Um, who through faith conquered, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, right? We see all these things that were done by the faithful on account of the faith that was given to them by God, right? Um, I'll actually get through this pretty quick. Um, and he mentions all these people. I mean, why do you think he's mentioning all the things that happened to them? What is, what is the point of mentioning all these things that happened to the faithful in the Old Testament? 
just as a lesson, or what's the point? What do y'all think? Huh? A warning? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's part of it, yeah. That it's a warning that to be part of the faithful, you are not going to have, a, you're not necessarily going to have uh, a life that's easy or comfortable. Satan will afflict you. Satan will come after you. He will try to make you despair or cause you to be so puffed up with pride that you fall away in that way, too. Um... But we see here specifically the persecutions, right? Um, so what's the point of going through all these persecutions? It's, could, it's definitely a warning, but it's also, um, it's also something, no doubt, that these people in this congregation or whoever might be hearing this sermon read to them would have experienced themselves. They know somebody that went through this, right? They know other people in this new Christian congregation at this time who received, who, uh, who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, right? That that being a Christian at that point in time especially, you're an outcast. You suffered in more ways than one. That, you know, you hear all these things about, and, and I, honestly, it's kind of annoying to me uh, because if anybody knows church history, people will say, you know, well, churches need to be in homes because they had house churches back at the beginning. Yeah, they had house churches because they were persecuted. They had to go to the houses because that's all they had. They even went to the catacombs because that's all they had. Because they were persecuted, driven out of the temple, driven out of the synagogues. They would have rather been in the synagogues. In fact, they tried, but they were driven out by the Jews who were more powerful. Right? So that's, that's kind of my little pet peeve about people who say, like, you know, the church is more than a building. It's like, yeah, you're right. The church is the people of God. But where they gather also, also matters, too. If we say that it doesn't, it's just not true. Why did you just say that something about <clears throat> driven out by the Jews? Um, yeah. Well, you brought up a question to me that I, I now it's out of my head, so I guess it wasn't important. <laughs> That's okay. No, I, I, I was just saying that nowadays... You hear a lot of people, and, and for good reason, people have been saying, especially during the pandemic, right? The church is more than a building. So don't feel bad that you can't go to church right now. But honestly, one of my pet peeves is when people kind of get into this sort of bumper sticker theology where it's just this nice little short saying that doesn't really get to the depth of what's going on where someone can easily take it out of context, right? Because we understand the church is more than a building. That if this place here was to be, you know, uh, was to burn down to the ground, our hope would not be in this building. Our hope would still be in Christ. But that's not to say, like, you know, but I think people go a little too far when they say, the church is more than a building. It's the people. It's like, yes, you're right. But the people must be gathered somewhere. They must be gathered all together in one place. To worship God as the body of Christ. I mean, that's one of the things that Satan tries to do all the time, is he tries to strike the shepherd and scatter the flock. Because when we're separated, we're weak. Right? And I think a lot of things that people, I think, have embraced a little too readily, the online option for church. Church online is a good stopgap when you just can't meet because of the health and safety of people. But at some point, you got to get back in church. Take the precautions that are needed, but get back in church, because when you stay separated, you are weak. You're not able to defend yourself by yourself. 
You need to be with other people. You need to be with the other faithful. You need to come to church. You need to come to Bible study and hear these things about how you are not alone. You're not by yourself because you're part of a greater body of Christ. And as much as we try to say or to convince ourselves, well, I can go to church online and be just fine. Eventually, you're going to feel the effects of not being able to see people face to face. You're going to feel the effects of not being able to come to the altar next to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and receive the body and blood of Christ as the body of Christ. You're going to feel those effects. And you can tell yourself all day long, well, I hear the word and it's good enough for me right now. And in the end, you're going to find out just how hard it is because God never meant for us to be that way. God never meant for us to be completely shut in and separated from other Christian believers, right? He never meant for these things. He meant for us to gather together to receive his promises together. Not separate, but together. And there are some who can't gather because of isolation, because of their health. And we as the body of Christ really need to do all that we can to reach out to those folks and to make them remember, help them remember that they are part of the body. Phone calls, visiting in person if possible, even at a distance, will help tremendously in that because we forget, I think, pretty easily how hard that is for some folks uh, because we're not experiencing it readily, right? Um, but we hear these things in... Uh, we have to remember the context here, and we'll end with this. The context of this book of Hebrews, is it written so that people could just have it privately at home? And read it privately. What is this? This is a sermon to be read to the congregation, the people that are gathered in person to hear God's word, to hear his promises, to hear of how, as we see in chapter 11, of all these people who were faithful, who received the promises of God that were fulfilled in Christ. And now we see that, hey, we are part of this congregation that we look back and we see, I'm of the same faith as Moses. I'm of the same faith as all the other patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We hold that same faith. We are part of the same body. And that is a tremendous comfort, right? We have the same promise. And we've seen that promise come to its fulfillment in Christ. And so when we see these things, we can face the persecutions. We can face those hardships because of God's promises, because he is faithful and true to keep his promises, right? Um, so, um, i trying to see here. That last verse, in verse thirty. Verses 39 and 40. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? Um, that what is, what is he getting at? That in all these, that is all the faithful that came before, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What did, not, what did they not receive that was promised? They didn't see Christ. They didn't see the promise fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Since God had provided something better for us, here and now in this place, hearing this word, which is that we have Jesus Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, we have that promise. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In that, you can't separate the Old Testament saints from us today. It's not possible. They held the same promises that we do. We hold the same promises that they did. We just see it clearer because we have Christ. It's a tremendous thing. And sometimes I don't think, I, th I think people look back at the Old Testament 
times, and they say, oh, that was the golden age, you know, that's, that's something that we should really strive for. You get a lot of, you get a lot of uh, Christians who get off the rails saying, like, we, we should keep the Passover. We should keep Yom Kippur. We should keep all these things that the Hebrews had because that was God's promise. And we rightly, as Christians, ought to say, I mean, keep the Passover if you want to, but what's the point? The true Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. Right? The Passover has been completely fulfilled. It was something that was making us look forward to what would be done in Christ. So yeah, keep the Passover if you want, but let's not confuse what's been fulfilled and what's been given to us. Right? That you can't reclaim some of the old glory because the glory's been the same all the way through. In fact, we have it better now because we have Christ. It's a tremendous thing. Um, so, we'll stop there. <laughs> stop there. Good stuff. Um, we will uh, continue on next time into chapter 12, which is um, probably the most famous part of uh, Hebrews. And again, all has to be, it all has to do with Jesus and what he's done. Um, with that, we'll, we'll go ahead and stop because we're way over time, right? pretty well over time. That's okay. Let's close with um, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses.